The Innocence Mission off the Glow album, Bright as Yellow, on KRCL 90.9. And starting us off tonight for Radioactive, that was Ray Street from Courtney Barnett. And of course, something you might see live December 2nd at The Depot. KRCL, proud to present that show. You can check out more details online at krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones. Welcome to Radioactive, a show that plugs you into the community weeknights at 6 with conversation and a playlist to match. Later this hour, Jessica Miller and Peyton Harkins, the two Salt Lake Tribune reporters digging into race and police shootings in a collaboration with Frontline on PBS. They have created a database that tracks the race of people shot at by police. It's the first ever kind of database, really groundbreaking implications for what that means. We'll talk about solutions and where their story will take them next. Tomorrow is a global climate strike, and that is where we're going to start tonight. I spoke with three grassroots activists involved in tomorrow's strike right here in Salt Lake City. So let's pass the mic and find out more. Hi, my name is Gabe Dominguez. I'm with Ecotopia Now, and I'm going to be at the September 24th strike because I want to support young people, including my own children, who deserve a better future than the one that's being sold to them right now. Hello, um, my name is Raquel. I um, organize and most widely described as a Friday's future organizer. Um, and I used to strike at the Capitol and I just hope to see a lot of people there uh, September 24th um, for just the worldwide um, uproot the system um, movement happening that day. Hi, my name is Natalie Roberts and I'm with Fridays for Future Utah and I'm striking on September 24th because I want to see a sustainable, just future that we can all prosper in. Welcome, all of you, to Radioactive. Thanks for Zooming with me to talk about the latest global climate strike coming up on Friday. And Nat, um, you've been on the show a couple of times before. You're 14, and uh, you led a strike at West High last week, correct? Yeah, it wasn't exactly a strike. It was more of a kind of letting people know flyering event for September 24th. But yes. How did folks respond at your school? Um, We had quite a lot of positive responses, but um, many people were quite kind of taken aback by the fact that we were standing by most of the doors, you know, handing out flyers saying, hey, come to this climate strike event. Taken aback because they don't know about the issue, concerned about the close contact because of COVID. What do you think that was about? I think people just in this COVID time kind of forget that the climate crisis exists. And then when you remind them, they're like, oh, that that exists too. I think people, um, yeah. So uproot the system. Tell us what the theme is about and give us some of the information that you shared with your peers. Yeah, so uproot the system basically means that we want to reorganize and drastically change the political, social, and economic systems in our world that are causing so much harm to the people that live on this planet and the planet itself. All right. Raquel, you're 20. You've been with Fridays for Future Utah for a while, and you're starting to you know, grow into a more adult role in in life, and this is still something that matters to you that you spend your time on, despite your busy schedule as a medical assistant. Yeah, I always kind of vowed not to get into a nine to five, but here I am, um, and I'm working harder than ever, more than school, you know? Like, um, I chose not to go to college because I really just like wanted to 
work on this and just like the important work it is um, that really no one can put in because they are in that um, loop of working that schedule, that capitalism that we live on that basically funds the entire um, issue that we are based upon. Um, and the global North has a lot to do with that. And so, you know, it's just very um, upsetting, but um, I guess there has to be a balance, you know, I, you know, we kind of all have to experience that growing up um, doing things that you maybe don't want to do. Um, <laughs> but you have to like be, you know, yeah, <laughs> content in a sense. And Gabe, you mentioned your children, you a dad. Yes, I'm a dad. I have two little kiddos, a three-year-old and a six-year-old. So, you know, a lot of folks looking at the state of the world, literally the planet, um, are, are pretty pessimistic about bringing kids into the world at this time. So that's a huge, like, optimistic thing to be a parent, I think, these days of, of especially really young kids. And so as a member of Ecotopia, what is it that you want our community to know about um, the global climate strike and, and the points you'd like to make? Well, the... Name Ecotopia Now refers to a theatrical production that was slated to tour Utah high schools and colleges in 2020, um, launching on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, but was derailed by COVID. Um, but it was a project sponsored by the National Science Foundation and funded by National Science Foundation. And essentially, we were going to go into schools and have a pep rally for the climate crisis and for Ecotopia. Basically, we wanted to inspire young people to get literate about the ecological situation, um, not just climate. Climate is but one, the climate crisis is but one symptom of a broken relationship between civilized people and the what we call nature, which is just an extension of our own being, of course. Um, and ecology, basic principles of ecology teach us that, that you can't obviously, you know, pollute your water and then drink it and then not assume it's, you know, going to affect you negatively. Same with air quality, same with soil quality, um, chemicals in the environment and so on. It's, um, there's sort of an internal body, what we consider our personal self. And then there's the external body, which is the forests, our external lungs, the rivers, our external bloodlines and all these things literally enter our blood and our lungs um, so the air that we have autonomy over that is legally protected, uh, there's really no hard line, no hard border between the air in our lungs and the air just outside of our face and the air that extends into the forest. And so each of these things, this is just like a, a small example of how we are ecologically connected. So we wanted to expose our ecological um, fabric get stoked about it through music and dance and theatrical vignettes. And then um, after this inspiring assembly, what we intended to be very inspiring, uh, connect kids with local ecotopian organizations. So that's ecological and social justice organizations who are doing hands-on activities uh, that the kids can get involved with immediately to make a difference and to create their vision of Ecotopia or the more beautiful world that their hearts know is possible. Because Ecotopia now is no longer online or is postponed for the time being, where uh, Ecotopia now is starting to refocus on helping the strikes more. And my father, uh, retired BYU law professor, David Dominguez is part of Ecotopia now also leading restorative justice efforts. So we'll be there at the strike 
um, as will many other organizations from our, the Valley who are doing rad work. Uh, kids can get connected with these organizations and join a community of people who are doing direct hands-on work that you can enjoy the world that you want to see in real time Daddy, while you're fighting for the world you want to see. Her. So it's, you can, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. and that's my daughter. That's hey. the youngest school striker in the house. I love it. I love it. And I really, <laughs> I really love how you integrated, like, you know, the air in our lungs and the air that we breathe. Same thing, folks. Same thing. We've got to take care of it. What's your daughter's name? Her name is Fauna. Hi, Fauna. Thanks for joining our conversation. So let's, uh, let's go to the events of the day, folks. Um, who wants to talk to me about the who, what, when, where, why of the strike on the 24th? Natalie, tell us what the lineup is, where people can meet, and uh, what the protocols are for being involved. Yes, yeah, so Friday morning, uh, we will be meeting at 11 o'clock a.m. at Washington Square Park and here in Salt Lake City. Um, and then at 11.30, we will begin our march up to the state capitol via State Street. Um, and we'll probably arrive at the Capitol around 12, 12.15. And then from that point onward, we will be having speeches, chants, musical performances, other activities, and a lot of tabling from other local Utah climate organizations. From Sierra Club, uh, Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment, many of the school districts, 100% clean energy campaigns, um, as well as Red Hive Collective. So we will just be seeing um, a bunch of, you know, justice organizations as well as climate organizations coming to table at this event. What's the website or social where we can direct folks for more information on this Friday's global climate strike here in Utah? So our Fridays for Future Utah Instagram is just fridaysforfuture.ut, and that is where we have our most up-to-date information about the strike. Now, Gabe, I know you're also a musician. You're in a band called Shake Your Peace that I just found out about. Let's hear something that you're going to be playing at the Global Climate Strike on Friday. What do you What do you have? Sure, that song is called Precision Earthquake, the prayer of seldom seen Smith. And it's based off of the moment in Utah author Edward Abbey's famous book, The Monkey Wrench Gang, when the salty Colorado River guide seldom seen Smith and his assistant, on their way to put in at Lee's Ferry for a new river trip are driving over the Glen Canyon Dam and they pull the truck over to the side of the road and they look over at the Glen Canyon Dam and the monstrosity that it is and how it's, um, and seldom seen remembers all of the canyons and everything that were there before they were drowned under all of those cubic feet of water. And he's just muttering to himself and praying for a precision earthquake. Well, Edward Abbey takes it one direction in the book and i took the liberty to go an entirely different direction of what happened after seldom praise for the precision earthquake and i feel like it's a really good uh, kind of microcosm of the way a lot of us feel in the environmental and social justice movement we're kind of facing this dam and we're people who can see almost through the mass of concrete and the mass of water to what used to be there um the sand the blue herons and the willows and the sandbars full of deer and it's our job to unimagine the dams that have been imagined into existence to blow past those obstacles and to recover the blue herons and the willows and the sandbars full of deer. And so that's actually what we're going to do at the strike. We're going to set up a theatrical representation of the Glen Canyon Dam slash every obstacle that stands in our way between us and our vision of a more 
ecologically and socially just future. And then we're going to run through it together in cheerful abandon and kick the, the, the paper and paper bags that represent the dam hither and yon. That's going to be a sight to behold. Thank you, everybody. Have a great global climate strike on Friday. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. She said, well then think of something, okay? How about if we pray, she said. Pray, said Smith. Pray. <laughs> now there's one thing I ain't tried. Pray. Let's pray for a little precision earthquake right here. So Smith went down on his knees there on the cement walkway, bowed his head, closed his eyes, clasped his hands prayer-wise, and prayed, prayed for a little precision earthquake. Well, the tourists walked by puzzled. The rangerette frowned and looked his way, and a gray hair snapped a photo of this river guide kneeled down to pray. Zelda, the girl whispered, you're making a public spectacle. Pretend you don't know me and get ready to run any second. The earth will start buckling now, he said, and he returned to his solemn mumble. Dear God, he prayed, dear old God, you know and I know what it was like here. Before them bastards from Washington moved in and ruined everything. You remember the river, how fat and golden it was in June. When the big runoff come down the Rockies, turned up and moving. Remember the deer on the sandbars and the blue herons and the willows. And the catfish so big and tasty, how they'd bite on spoiled salami. Remember that creek that come down through Bridge and Forbidden Canyon. The green is cool as clear as God, it's enough to make a man sick. Do you recall old Woody Edgel and his crazy cable ferry? You remember that damn thing, but it gets you across the river barely. Remember all those cataracts in 40 miles? Now they flooded out half them. See, part of the Escalade too. God, you wouldn't believe they drowned Davis Gold, Willow Canyon, Gregory Natural Bridge, 10 Mile. You're getting all of this. We need a precision earthquake.
Food security means that you know where your next meal is coming from. The Utah Food Bank helps hundreds of thousands of Utahns plan their next meal. To learn more about hosting a food drive virtually or at your office, visit utahfoodbank.org. Hi, I'm Mike of Thursday Night Psych Out on KRCL. Join me every Thursday night at 8 p.m. for two and a half hours of far-out sounds from the psychedelic 60s to the space rock of the 70s, the Paisley Underground and Gothic Psych of the 80s, shoegaze from the 90s, and the new psychedelic renaissance from the last 20 years. It's the psychedelic movement. That's Thursday Night Psych Out, every Thursday at 8 p.m. Tune in, turn on, and psych out. I'm Laura Jones, and you're listening to Radioactive. Weeknights from 6 to 7, we plug you into your community with conversation and a playlist to match. Jessica Miller and Peyton Harkins are up next. They're two reporters at the Salt Lake Tribune, and for the last year they've been working with Frontline and other partners to assemble a database of the people shot by police here in Utah, what their race is, and to kind of sort out from that data what that says about us, about police, but also about our community, and where that story may be taking us next when it comes to solutions. Let's keep passing that microphone. My name is Jessica Miller. I'm a criminal justice reporter at the Salt Lake Tribune. My name is Peyton Harkins, and I am a criminal justice reporter at the Salt Lake Tribune as well. So let's get into the topic at hand. Your story in the Sunday paper, a Utah first data that shows the race of people police shoot at and several follows. So Jessica and Peyton, this is a collaboration with Frontline. Tell us how this came together and how long it's been in the works. Jessica. So the Salt Lake Tribune has had an internal police shooting database for about 10 years now. And um, last year when there were you know, people protesting in the streets after George Floyd's death and, you know, protesting uh, police violence. Peyton and I decided that this was information that people really wanted and, and needed. And we wanted to expand our police shooting database from, from what it was. And so we connected with Frontline and they were able to essentially give us resources, funding and people who can help us put in records requests, make calls to family members, you know, do the interviews that we need to do to find out some of this data, such as, you know, the race of people who have been shot at, that will help give us a better picture of what police shootings look like in Utah. And Peyton, walk us through the headlines of the the stories that have run so far. The first story that came out was just sort of an overview of the, the data that we collected. And I think the most important finding from that was that we determined as uh, we determined basically that racial and ethnic minorities in Utah are being shot at at rates disproportionate to their population makeup. So that breaks down to racial and ethnic minorities were um, a part of one third of all the police shootings over the past decade, but they only make up a quarter of the population here in Utah. And then we kind of extrapolated or we kind of looked a little bit deeper into that data and also found some findings that were a bit striking to us, such as white people were much more likely to have a gun when they were shot by police, whereas racial and ethnic minorities were not. And that's something to to give you pause. And the story that I read today online gets into some of that. And uh, basically the implicit bias that no one can escape in our society. Officers are affected by that too, Jessica? Right. And, you know, as we've discussed 
reform over this past year as legislators have debated reform, a lot of that conversation has been housed in, you know, maybe we need more training for officers. But experts that we spoke to said that this implicit bias can't necessarily be trained away. And so maybe there are other things we should be looking at um, to reduce the contact that police have uh, in certain circumstances, like perhaps reducing traffic stops or uh, maybe even having unarmed police officers in situations that have less likeliness to to uh, end in violence, things like that, because training might not be enough to get rid of the, the implicit bias that that we all have. And Peyton, in the article today that I read online, it talks about the stereotypes that we all have in our heads. And that's at play in these split second decisions that officers are making. Yeah, some of the experts that we talked to, they they pointed to sort of decades of research that exist in social sciences that have put people in simulations. And whenever they see a Black person, for instance, they're much more likely to perceive a weapon where there isn't one. And in those cases, they're much more likely to shoot as well. So I really like what the Tribune is doing about solutions journalism, and you propose some solutions. Let's talk about that, because we always say more training, um, more training, more training, more training. But it's got to go deeper than that. Jessica. Right. And that's, um, as I mentioned, some of the solutions. I mean, this is a question we asked everyone we talked to who we, we gave this data to. You know, how do we solve this? What are some of the solutions? And a lot of people did say training was key, but a lot of the experts we spoke to said, you know, maybe the police shouldn't pull people over so often. Maybe they should have fewer guns or maybe training should just be uh, be refined and, and more focused. And so those are some of the solutions that were proposed to us in, in the interviews that we did. And Peyton, my former boss, Salt Lake City Police Chief Chris Burbank, who now works on these issues on a national scale, talked to you as well, saying, you know, do away with your general uh, speeding tickets or parking tickets, because that's where we seem to see a lot of these situations arise. Yeah. So Chris Burbank has talked with me a few times about this idea of you know, we can't train our way out of this problem completely. And so therefore we need to sort of remove officers from the situations wherein they might end up shooting somebody. And so you kind of pair that with what other research has shown that sort of the clearest reason that racial and ethnic minorities are shot at by police disproportionately is because they're also stopped disproportionately. Or people will call 911 on, for instance, a black person in a situation where they wouldn't call for a white person. And so Chris Burbank and others sort of say, you know, let's Let's just remove the officers from those equations if we can. Let's not pull people over for, for you know, non-moving violations or something. Let's focus on dangerous driving instead of these sort of um, investigatory stops is what they call them. And so I recall his group, Center for Policing Equity, I believe, um, they also work with the community and look at the 911 calls, like who is getting called or who's calling and calling on what and what that makeup is like. And I'm curious where you're going to take this conversation next that you're you're having in print, because the police are a reflection of the community in multiple ways. So how do we get at it as a community? Are you going to go there next, Jessica? Um, you know, I think that that's, that's a really good question. Peyton, do you have any ideas on that? I know as this project goes forward, one of our big goals is to make this data available to the public. So our database right now that we're just bringing you kind of snippets of as we get them, one day you'll be able to go through and come to your own conclusions. And we're about to have our documentary with Frontline come out October 26th. And I think surrounding all of that, there's going to be a, a push at the Tribune to sort of get 
you know, community feedback or do sort of live events and kind of have conversations with stakeholders and us. And so maybe, you know, something can come from that. Tell me more about the documentary. I'll let Jessica talk about that. <laughs> All right, Jess. So the documentary, um, it will cover a lot of what our reporting has covered this last year. It, it will be about police shootings in Utah who are being shot at using this data to kind of give a, a big picture of what police shootings look like in Utah, because this is information that no one has tracked before or few have tracked before. There's no government agency that tracks how many times the police officers are firing their weapons in Utah. And so even being able to give a picture of of those shootings and some of the demographics, you know, such as race or whether people were in a mental health crisis at the time they were shot or even location, are there pockets where uh, police shootings are happening more often? Those are all things that, that we'll be exploring in our reporting and also in the film, um, just to kind of get a better idea of these, of why these police shootings are happening and then trying to get a better understanding of them. This is a bigger reporting project, I think, than maybe the general uh, public understands because you're trying to do your work here in the community and you've got, what, frontline crews following you around? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, Peyton and I have had uh, a production crew following us around for about a year now on and off. They'll, they'll come to, you know, press conferences with us. We've done interviews with them and you know, they've taped us recording other people. So it's been a very unique perspective for two print reporters to be in front of the camera as often as we've been so far. Well, it's got to be unsettling because you kind of become the story in a way when this documentary comes out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit uncomfortable as, as I said, print reporters who are not used to being the story, who are not used to you know, even doing radio interviews, you know, talking is not really the thing that we're very good at, if anybody could tell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so being very forward facing and being a part of the story is, is very unique. But I think that our, our database and the work that we've done in Utah is also unique. And Peyton, talk to me about the real people that these numbers represent and some of the stories that you've gathered. Yeah, one that we just highlighted in our, our piece on the race data was the case of Brian Pina Valencia. He, um, was among, well, well, basically, in our database, we found sort of the biggest disparity in unarmed shootings was involved Hispanic people, and he, he was he was a Hispanic man who ended up being shot and killed by police in a situation that um, District Attorney Sim Gill said was not justified. The officer perceived, for whatever reason, that Brian had a gun or was going to be able to, you know, he was an imminent threat to the officer, and the officer shot and killed him. And it turned out that he didn't have a gun. He did have a wallet for, in his pocket that he had thrown out, but he didn't have a gun. And I, you know, I've spent time with that family. He's one of the people whose face is on um, the mural in Salt Lake City that's dedicated to victims of police violence. I've, I've met the family out there. They, he was a guy who was really into, he was really into working out. He did sort of those Spartan races and stuff like that, was really into pushing himself. And so I went out there with his family one day and it was raining and they wanted to go and do sort of, do you know what a burpee is? It's, it's kind oh, of yeah. this like. Jumping, like, a jump up, jumping jack, jump down, push up kind of thing. It's intense. Yeah. It's, it's very intense and he was very into this. And I was out with his family as they, you know, went out in the rain in front of his mural and were just trying to honor him in this way because he was kind of the guy that, you know, was into that sort of stuff and they wanted to remember him. But yeah, I've, I've, talked, I've talked to so many families as we've gone through this reporting process and it's, yeah, it's tough. It's tough for them more than it is me. And, I, I'm, and I'm guessing as a reporter, it's rewarding to be able to amplify the voices of these families and what they want to see happen. 
Uh, Jessica, have you been able to glean what they'd like to see happen when it comes to police training? There's everything from defund the police to hire more and train harder. So what are the families saying they want to see happen as a result of your reporting? Um, I think, you know, every family is different. There are some that are very much are want the police defunded. There are some who want more training. Um, there are others, for instance, a previous story that we did was about officers who have been in more than one shooting. There's been several officers who have been in two, three or four police shootings in their career. And, you know, those families involved there want to see not only more training, but more accountability where if officers are being, most officers will go their entire career without ever being in a police shooting. And so if you've got an officer who has been in three shootings or four shootings, um, is that a moment for retraining or just more accountability of uh, examining the police officer's actions and if what they did was appropriate? The information that you're gathering is not just about um, shootings when an officer draws their, their weapon and fires, but also tasers, I understand. No, our, it is just about police shootings. What okay. does make the database unique, though, is a lot of national databases focus only on fatal force when a person dies. And our database covers both um, fatal and non-fatal shootings. So even if an officer shot somebody and they missed, the intention was they, they, they fired their weapon hope, intending to hit that person and use deadly force. And so the officer's intention was still to to use fatal force to kill someone. And so whether they missed or that person was able to get medical help and survived um, is kind of irrelevant as we're talking about, you know, an officer's intention. And so it was very important to us that we included fatal and non-fatal shootings in our database. Is your paper's commitment to maintaining this database in perpetuity? Yes, we I was talking to a reporter recently who said he started here in 2005 and they had a list of police shootings and we are, yeah, we are committed to continuing this database for as long as we can, even if, even if it turns out Jessica and I aren't here someday, hopefully somebody's going to carry this on. Thank you so much for sharing your work and I'm guessing more stories to come. Yes, certainly. Lots more to come. Jessica Miller and Peyton Harkins, reporters at the Salt Lake Tribune. Check tonight's show notes for a link to their work as well as details about when their documentary with Frontline will air.